If you'd open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5 with, or 1 Peter chapter 3 with me, I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 3, we're in verse 8, verses 18 through 22 this afternoon. It's a blessing to get to this point. I, I trust that you'll allow me to share just two stories here that, uh, to begin our time together. One story is that uh, I have preached this passage to a number of people in this congregation before. I know that because uh, a number of, uh, it must have been two years ago, Pastor Brian Borowski invited me to a church to preach on a Wednesday night. And he asked me to preach on 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. And so if you were there on a Wednesday night, some a few years ago, and I'm sure you'll remember all of this, then, you know, you are welcome for the very first time. The preacher's going to say, you may fall asleep during this <laughs> Somehow I gather that you've forgotten about that, even if you were there. And so we'll, we'll proceed as though this is the first time. A second thing I want to say about this passage. I was just at a conference, uh, our, our seminary, you know I teach at Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, and after the conference, uh, the speaker came over to the pastor's house, and we were having a discussion. My pastor teaches the homiletics or the preaching course at our seminary, and he was saying that during his class, he breaks up the book of First Peter and requires each of the students to select a passage from First Peter to preach. Uh, so that they would get some practice during the class in preaching. And he says every year he warns them, don't pick this passage. And uh, so he was sitting here ta talking to our entire group saying, yeah, there's that one passage in First Peter. I tell the guys, don't pick that passage because it's just a hard passage to preach. And I'm sitting there smiling because I know that this weekend I'm preaching that very sermon. Now, obviously, he wasn't saying don't preach that sermon. He was saying first-year homileticians or first-year seminary students, perhaps, uh, this is a bit of a difficult passage to preach from. I think we're in a very advantageous situation, though, and a couple of, couple of reasons for that. But the primary one is that we're not just jumping into 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. We've been working through the text of 1 Peter, and that's going to help us quite a bit understand what Peter's saying here. The second thing I want to say about this passage, and this is going to be the important thing. Have you ever heard the phrase, don't miss the forest for the trees? Don't miss the forest for the trees. The idea there is that there are times where we can get so pedantically focused on some nuance, some minor element of maybe a passage or a book or something else that we miss the major message. And today, as we look in 1 Peter chapter 3, I want us to get the big message, even if some of the details of this passage remain a little bit challenging for us. So let's read the passage. We'll pray, then we'll jump right into it. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the word that you've given to us. These are your words, not mine. This is truth. And so as we know it is truth, we desire strongly to know precisely what it says and how that influences the way we ought to live. I thank you for the opportunity you've given me to serve these, your people. And I ask today, as we look into your word, that we would have clarity to understand what you have said. And more than that, that your spirit would apply it to our hearts in such a way that we would be compelled to grow in faith as a result of it. Father, we have just saying that the name of your son is wonderful, it's powerful, it's beautiful. And I ask that our words would not be vain today, but instead we would see that this afternoon. As we look into your word, show us the beauties of your son, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So we begin with a text that starts with the word for, and of course that indicates that it's connected to what comes before. I'm going to draw that connection a little bit later in the message. But one of the things as I read this passage, you might have been asking as I read it was, okay, so which is the controversial part? The first part or the second part or all of it? And the answer is all of it. <laughs> there are a number of controversial elements in this passage. And we're going to have to work through those here in just a moment. Now, it's not just our generation that finds this particular passage daunting or challenging. If you go to the next slide, my clicker is not working. Uh, Luther. Martin Luther, if you know Martin Luther, he's, he's fairly known as a pretty bold guy. Uh, nailing theses up on walls and that sort of thing. And, you know, as he came to First Peter, he says, you know, this is a wonderful text. And a more obscure passage, perhaps, than any other in the New Testament. So I do not know for certain just what Peter means. Luther's not the sort of guy who tends to go around saying, you know, I don't quite know what somebody meant. He was pretty firm and steadfast in his interpretation. But when he came to this passage, he said, I'm just not sure what Peter is saying here. And so he leaves it a little bit in the air. I think there's a reason why Luther didn't quite know. And I think there's a reason why we have a little bit more clarity than he did. And we'll talk about that here as we go along. But I want to suggest this about this passage. You can go to the next slide. There is clear components to this passage. And there are some rather unclear components to this passage. But notice the pattern, because this is central to capture what's happening. Because let me actually reread the passage and skip verses 19 through 21. And what you'll discover is that the passage makes sense without verses 19 through 21. And my argument is going to be that the main theme of the passage, if you want to put it this way, the woods, is verses 19 and 22. And the individual trees are 19 through 21. And we can get so caught up in 19 through 21 that we miss 18 and 22. So let me just read it. And just jumping from 18 to 22... For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, who has now gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers 
having been subject to him. Do you realize that when I read verses 18 and 22 together, that we actually get a truncated, a very concise statement of the gospel? That Jesus died, that he rose again, or that that he died, that he was buried, that he rose again, and when he rose again, he ascended to the right hand of the Father with all things subject to him. There's the gospel in a nutshell. And it's given to us in verses 18 and 22. If you go to the next slide, I think what Peter's doing here is he's actually answering three questions for us. And there's a reason he's doing it. Again, we'll get to that in just a moment. But he answers three questions for us. The first question is, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? The second is, why did Jesus do what he did? And the third question is, how did he do it? And here's my argument of what Peter's doing in this passage. In verses, verses 18 and 22, he answers all of the questions. In verse 18, he asks, the que- he asks and answers the question, what did Jesus do? And the answer to that question is he suffered. We'll talk more about it in just a second. Then he asks, why did Jesus suffer? And he gives us the answer. It's a clear statement that he would bring us to God that he might open the door of access to God. We'll again talk about that in just a moment. The third question he asks is, if this is what Jesus did and and, and why he did it, how did he do it? And his answer comes in three parts. The first is that by, he did it by being put to death. The second is by being raised to life by the Spirit. And then you'll notice I've got this dot, dot, dot in there. Because that's where, our, that's where the controversial element lays. It's within a minor portion of his major argument. And so we have to remember that. We have to understand that when we look at the passage. And then he answers the third element of how this has taken place. How did Jesus suffer and bring us to God? It was by arising or ascending to the right hand of the Father. And so that's what we want to work through. Let's go to the next slide. And what we'll do is we'll go through each of those questions and try and attempt to address how Peter portrays for us what Jesus did, why he did it, and how he did it. First, what did Jesus do? This is the least controversial of the the passage. It's quite evident and clear what Jesus did. He suffered. He suffered. He died. Indeed, Peter tells us here in chapter 3, verse 18, for Christ also suffered. That word also is going to be really important for us when we come back to this in a little bit. But he suffered. And you'll notice that he suffered once for sins. This is a statement of the once for all sacrifice of Jesus. And this is a contrast with the Old Testament sacrificial system in which the Old Testament sacrifices had to be done again and again and again because they were not sufficient. They could not accomplish what they were actually designed to accomplish. They were forward pointers. The book of Hebrews says they were shadows of the reality which was Christ. But when the reality came, when the true sacrifice came, Jesus, when he suffered and died, that was a once for all sacrifice. He suffered once, and notice this, for sins. Now, we might ask the question, which sins did Jesus die for? And the obvious answer is not his own. Earlier, Peter told us 
Jesus was sinless. And even in this passage, notice what it says. He once died for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. If you're struggling to understand where you fit in on that scale, you're the unrighteous. He's the righteous. He stood in our place. The righteous one died for the unrighteous ones. Now, Peter's not going to develop that in this passage. He's assuming we already know that. He's talked about it in the past. Other passages detail that. But the point here is, this is what Jesus did. He suffered to the point of death for the sake of unrighteous people. Now, one might wonder why he did this, which is the next slide. And this is the next question that Peter asks. Why did he do it? Now, the picture I've displayed up there is a, is a wonderful picture of a door. And that's not accidental. Notice what the phrase says here in verse 18. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Here's the purpose clause. That he might bring us to God. The word translated bring us here is a really fascinating, fascinating one. And you can look into the, into the language to find what it means is it's the courtier of, of a king. It's the person who would take, who, who would go and fetch somebody and then bring them into the presence of the king. Do you see then the analogy that's being presented here? Jesus suffered in order to open the door of access to his father. This shouldn't be a surprising element to us who are believers who know what the scripture teaches. Because when Jesus died, what was one of the significant events that took place? The tearing of the veil. This incredibly thick fabric that divided the holiest of holies from the general scope of humanity. They could not enter into that place. Only the high priest and only he once a year. And even in that there was fear and trepidation. Walking into the very presence of the holiness of God. And at the crucifixion of Jesus when he died. Picturesquely it is presented to us. That the very access to the father has been torn open for us. But let us not be. Uncautious here, because that veil being torn still may only give us access to the degree that the Son invites us in. You see, He's the one who is the access to the Father. He died in order to bring us that He might bring us to God. There are implications from this we'll return to at the end. I'm walking through the passage to simply understand what he's saying. What did Jesus do? He suffered for the unrighteous. He did it so that he might bring us to God. Of course, he also left an example for those who would suffer after him, which we'll again return to in just a moment. So the first two questions Peter asks are rather uncontroversial and lots of passages of scripture talk about them. What did Jesus do? He suffered for sinners. Why did he do it in order to bring us to God? The third question though, and the next slide will help us to understand it. How did Jesus do it? And this gets rather complicated and that's what we're going to have to work through today. Don't miss the forest for the trees though. There are three 
participles. Now, I know that doesn't make much sense to you here, but in verse, verse 18, he gives us two types of verbs that indicate what he did. The next time he gives us that type of verb occurs in verse 22. And you know what he's signaling by that? As he's signaling in verse 18, I'm giving you two things that Jesus did. In verse 22, I'm giving you the last thing. And again, this pinpoints for us that what happens in this verses 19 through 21 occurs during that second part. So the first thing he does, you see it there in verse 18, being put to death. How did he bring us to God? He brought us to God by being put to death in the flesh. And of course, this is standard fare, evangelical doctrine. Jesus died in the flesh. He literally took on humanity and took on suffering in order that he might bring us to God. But notice the second thing again in verse 18. Not only did he bring us to God by being put to death, but second, but made alive in the spirit, made alive in the spirit. Now, this is uh, somewhat controversial because it's not clear what spirit he's referring to. You'll notice that in some of your uh, versions, you have a footnote there. If you've got the NIV, you've got a footnote. If you have the ESV, there's no footnote. Uh, actually, there is a footnote there. You'll notice it if, if you've got one. Uh, and, and it could be a small s or a big s. Now, stick with me here for a moment. The word for spirit can refer to regular spirit or Holy Spirit, just like our word spirit. We, we say, well, the spirit. And you say, well, which spirit? Are you talking about the Holy Spirit or my spirit or somebody else's spirit? What spirit are you talking about? And the way that we tend to signal that we're talking about the Holy Spirit is by putting the capital letter there, don't we? Because we're giving, we're giving honor to the divine one by capitalizing his name. Different translations take this in different ways, partly because they don't know what the text is saying. Because is this in reference to he was made alive in his spirit, that is, not in his physical body, but in just a spiritual realm? Or is it that he was made alive by the spirit? And if you have a different translation other than the ESV, they tend to take it as by the spirit rather than in the spirit. And my argument here is that it would be by the Spirit. Because if you read the passage like I just did a moment ago, verses 18, then 22, if this does not refer to the resurrection, then there's no reference to the resurrection here. The way in which he brings us to God would not refer to his resurrection. But if you look in Scripture, the way that we are brought to God is not by the death of Jesus, as much as we tout that, it's actually by the resurrection of Jesus. Because the resurrection was the declaration of Jesus' innocence. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians 15, what Paul tells us is he says, if Jesus is still dead, then you're still in your sins. And that's a weird phrase, if in fact we are forgiven when Jesus died. But we're not forgiven when Jesus died. We're forgiven when Jesus was raised from the dead. And here then... The point is that he, was, that he brought us to God, not only by being put to death in the flesh, but I think the second phrase should be, but made alive by the Spirit. 
by the Holy Spirit. The third phrase doesn't come until verse 22. And again, you'll notice it down there, verse 22, who has ascended into heaven. Now notice this then. Again, this is just simple gospel truth. Jesus died. He rose again. And he ascended to the Father. So what happens between these two phrases then all occurs after Jesus was raised from the dead. That's critical. Because there are going to be some who argue that what happens in verses 19 through 21 happens when Jesus was still dead. That is, he might be alive in the spirit, but he was dead in his body. His body was still in the grave. But I think according to a proper interpretation of the passage, what occurs here actually occurs while he was raised from the dead. So go ahead and go to the next slide. I'm suggesting then that what we have in verses 19 through 21 is what, what we tend to call an excursus. Don't, don't get lost in that term. It just means it's a side discussion. Now, Peter has a very good reason for giving us this side discussion. We're going to talk about it in just a moment. But it is a side discussion. Good to go to the next slide. There are a number of interpretations of this passage. And uh, my, my point this afternoon is not to work through this in an academic sort of a setting, but I do think it's helpful for us to understand that there are different interpretations of what's happening in this passage. There are some, Wayne Grudem is one of these individuals, who argues that what this passage is saying is that Jesus preached through Noah in the days of Noah. Now, the reason that he holds to this position is because he says the mention of Noah here later has to be in reference to the, the Noah that we know, and I agree with him. And he says, and if he preached, and it's referencing to Jesus, then Jesus must have preached. Then the idea seems to be, and this is what he's seeming, seeming to say, that even before Jesus was alive... Even before he was incarnate, he was preaching even in Noah's day. My problem with that interpretation is that it just doesn't fit the context. He's talking about what Jesus did in his ministry, how he brought us to God. Why would he then turn to say, oh, and by the way, you realize that he preached through Noah thousands of years ago. It just doesn't seem to fit very well. There's another interpretation. Go ahead and go to the next slide. And this one is, is deeply problematic in my opinion. And that is that what Peter's talking about here is a second chance. They would say, yes, Jesus was either he rose from the dead or he didn't. It, it really doesn't matter whether he's raised from the dead at this point. But he goes down to Sheol or into hell. And he offers repentance to those who did not formally believe. And so this is a second chance for the unrepentant. The problem with that interpretation is that Scripture nowhere describes that this would ever take place. And if, in fact, God wanted us to know that such would take place, I think he would not have buried it in one of the more obscure passages. We should be able to defend it somewhere else. So this is a problematic interpretation I don't agree with. Let's go to the third. Uh, this is the view that what Jesus does is after, before he's raised from the dead... He goes down into Sheol, into the place of the departed dead. And he proclaims victory to, fall, to saints who are there. 
Now, let me explain it for just a moment. Do you remember this parable Jesus gives about a rich man and Lazarus? And when the rich man and Lazarus both die, one is righteous and the other is not. The rich man is not righteous. Lazarus is. But where do they both end up? They both end up in in shale, except that the rich man is in torment, but Lazarus is not. Some interpreters have then suggested that before Jesus rose from the dead, before he gained his final victory, people could not enter into the presence of God the Father because they didn't have righteousness. They didn't have the righteousness of Christ yet. For this reason, they were in a separate compartment of the departed dead, awaiting the victory of Jesus. And what Jesus does at his resurrection, or before his resurrection, it depends on the interpreter, is he goes down to the departed dead, and he proclaims a message of victory. And he takes them with him as he ascends, rises from the dead, and takes these departed saints to be with the Father in the heavenly places. Now, if the interpretation I'm about to share with you is wrong, I think that one's right. <clears throat> but I don't think that one's right. And of course, you know that whatever interpretation someone gives last is always the right one. So let's go to the last one. I believe that what Peter's talking about here is that Jesus is, uh, that during this period, After Jesus' resurrection, Jesus descends into a place called Tartarus. It's a a place of Hades, or Sheol, in which fallen angels reside. Angels who have disobeyed God. And they reside in this place. And what he proclaims there is not a proclamation of, of forgiveness. Because there is no forgiveness for the fallen angels. They sinned with incredible knowledge. But instead, it is a proclamation of judgment to them. And then he ascends to be with the Father. Now, why would I suggest this to be the right interpretation? Well, there are a number of things in the text that suggest this to me. First, look with me in verse 19. It says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Do you know what's interesting about that word spirits? is that it is always, except for one passage, used of angelic beings. In that one passage in which it's used of humans, it literally reads the spirits of humans, because it's distinguishing. Because the word, if you read it normally, would not refer to humans. So So the writer of Hebrews clarifies it's the spirit of humans. Every other time this word is used, it's used in reference to angelic spirits. Now, these spirits, the text tells us, were in prison. Now, why are these spirits in prison? By the way, this is part of the reason why I don't believe it is the righteous. Because the language of prison doesn't sound very good for people who are righteous, does it? Well, let's just keep you in prison for a little while and then we'll get you out of there. That doesn't sound very pleasing or rewarding for saints who have died. Abraham then, or uh, Moses, all these people would have been in prison until Jesus came and freed them. That doesn't seem right. But notice it says that these spirits were in prison 
Verse 28, verse 20, because they formerly did not obey. So note this. There is some period in which they did not obey. What period was that? Notice it goes on. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah. In the days of Noah. Why is it referencing people in Noah's day? That seems like a really odd reference. Unless it's talking about a specific group of angelic beings. If you have your Bibles, turn back with me to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 6 begins this way. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, daughters were born to them, the sons of God. Let me just pause there. You remember how I said in the New Testament, the word spirits always refers to angelic beings? In the Old Testament, this phrase, the sons of God, in the way it's used right here, refers to angelic beings. Clearly refers to angelic beings. So the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And afterward, when the sons of God, again, that's used of angels, came in or cohabitated with the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These children were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Notice in the next verse, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. You'll notice what the next passage then goes on to detail. It details the flood. So, here are angelic beings, seemingly, at least in terms of the Old Testament language, cohabitating with human females. Now, this is quite disturbing to many of us because we like to think of the spiritual realm as completely distinct from and separate from the physical realm. But here's simply what I'd say about angelology, our understanding of angels. We don't understand them. We really don't. I mean, just realize, remember in the book of Daniel... Daniel says, or the, God says in the book of Daniel, that I had sent a letter, I had sent this message, and it was supposed to come to you, and, I, and an angel was supposed to come to you, but he was delayed because another angel was fighting against it. And we're thinking, what? <laughs> what does that even mean? And then there's a prince of Israel, but then there are these angelic beings who are... My point is this, I mean, then you've got the seraphim and the cherubim. I mean, you've got all kinds of angelic beings. And we really don't know the non-physical realm and how it operates. And I would simply say this, that, you know, to to someone who asks me, is it possible that uh, angelic beings can take on physical flesh and bear children? I would say two things about that. One, the only reason I might say no is because Jesus says in the Gospels that angels are not given in marriage. But notice he does not say that they are not able to take on human flesh and, and bear children. He just says that they are not designed to, take, to, to, to be married. But 
But the reason that I believe this is the right interpretation of this passage is, is for this reason. Notice again, this is talking about spirits, spirits in prison, spirits in prison because of the days of Noah. What else could this refer to? Now, there are a few passages that I want us to look at because I think this defends my claim. Go ahead and go to the next slide if you would. There are a couple of passages that, that help us to understand this. And, you know, I normally don't read from First Enoch in a church setting. But there's a reason why I'm going to read this passage for you. And that is because I know that Peter knew First Enoch. And you say, how do you know that Peter knew First Enoch? It's because he quotes it in Second Peter. Okay, so he knows about this book. And here's what this book says. Came to pass when the children of men had multiplied in those days and were born unto them. By the way, I should mention the book of First Enoch is a book that was written between the periods of the, the Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's something that the early Jewish interpreters, the people who would have written this, Peter, for instance, they knew this text very well. So first Enoch says, it came to pass when the children of men had multiplied in those days were born unto them, beautiful and comely daughters and the angels, the children of heaven. And by the way, this is much more explicit. This is clarifying that it's angels. It's not, not sons of God and could it be man? No, no, it's angels. They saw and lusted after them and said to one another, come, let us choose wives from among the children of men, beget us children. And Simjaza who was their leader, said unto them, I fear you will not indeed agree to do this deed, and I alone shall have to pay the penalty of a great sin. And they all answered him and said, Let us all swear an oath and all bind ourselves by mutual imprecations not to abandon this plan, but to do this thing. And all the others together with them took unto themselves wives, and each chose for himself one, and they began to go in unto them and to defile themselves with them. And the Lord said unto Michael, Go, bind Simjaza and his associates who united themselves with the women so as to defile themselves with them in all their uncleanness. And when their sons have slain one another and they have seen the destruction of their beloved ones, bind them fast for 70 generations in the valleys of the earth till the day of their judgment and their consummation, till the judgment that is forever and ever is consummated. In those days they shall be led off to the abyss of fire and to the torment and the prison in which they shall be confined forever. I think Jesus' words in the Gospels actually proclaim to us about this same judgment. Do you remember in the book of Revelation that one day hell will be emptied and in, emptied into the lake of fire? Do you remember when Jesus comes to the legion and he says to legion, uh, or legion says, don't, don't cast us into the pit. Don't cast us into judgment before the time. Where are they afraid of going? They're afraid of going where some of their angelic brothers already are in prison, awaiting the final judgment. And this is what first Enoch is writing. Now, if you go to the next slide, Jude 6, Jude, and now we're back to biblical literature. So if you have a problem with first Enoch, I understand that. Let's look at Jude 6. Jude 6 says this. The angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling. These angels he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on that great, great day. And then notice this next phrase. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise, 
likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Do you see what Jude is saying? He's saying that there were angels who didn't keep their authority. They sinned. And how did they sin? They sinned in the same way that Sodom and Gomorrah did. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah, they were chasing strange flesh. That's what the language refers to. In other words, it was men with men. It was unnatural. It shouldn't have been that way. And what Jude is saying is, in the same way, angels were seeking after men. It was unnatural. It shouldn't have been that way. Peter refers to this, this as well. Go to the next slide, if you would. Second Peter chapter 2. He says, God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. If you ask the question... When did angels sin? Well, of course, they sinned when they fell. But here's the thing. Not all of the fallen angels were immediately put in prison. Only some of them were. Why only some? And my argument would be because only some of them took took wives among humanity. All right, if you followed me so far. The idea Peter is presenting here is... That there are angels in prison and that they've been in prison because they sinned against God. They sinned in a way that they knew was wrong. They sinned in the days of Noah. And now God, and, and now Jesus goes and proclaims a message of his own victory to them. In other words, I think they held out hope that maybe they would not be finally judged. And yet when he comes down, he indicates that their judgment is confirmed. Go to the next slide if you would. There's a problem now because there's an excursus within an excursus. There's a side statement within a side statement because notice what Peter does. It says, because they formerly didn't obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. And then notice this phrase, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So why does Peter mention here the flood? He uses the flood as an analogy. And here's, here's essentially what he's saying. He's saying that what God did through the flood was he wiped out sinful humanity. And he provided a means by which Noah and his sons could live a righteous life. Now, I can't get into the details of the passage simply because of the time, time frame. And, and I really want us to focus on the broader passage. But I think that's what he's saying in terms of Christian baptism. Early on, when, uh, when the early church was talking about baptism, they combined the idea of bapt, uh, spirit baptism. The spirit coming in and forgiving sins with the idea of water baptism. So when he says baptism saves you, he's not saying when you dip in the waters of baptism, now you're saved. He's actually speaking about spirit baptism. And the reason you know that is because he says it's not like what saved you was the washing of the body. Like you could wash the filth of sin away. But instead, it is the appeal to God for a good conscience. Do you know what that's called? That's called repentance. It's when you come to God and you say, God, I am dirty. 
I'm a sinner and I need your grace. That's the appeal to God for a good conscience. And what Peter's saying is, just as in those days, in the days of Noah, the, the sin was washed away in the lives of those who have been saved by God, by obedience to his, to his gospel, that is, obedience to the uh, repentance of sins and trusting in the gospel. Their sins have been washed away and their opportunity for righteousness has been presented to them. And this all because of the resurrection of Jesus. So if we step back and we ask the question, why is he talking about this? He's telling us this because he's telling us how it is that, Jesus, that we were brought into the very presence of God. How could dirty sinners like us have access to God? Because by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have been washed clean of sin. So... Let's then step back again to the broad picture because that's the controversial part in 19 through 21. Let's get back to some more solid footing here. Verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. I want you to notice in verse 22, he says, he's gone now into the heavenly realm He's at the right hand of God. And then notice this next phrase. The angels, authorities, and powers are subject to him. Do you know what message he proclaimed when he went down into the shale? He said, I have gained the victory. I have power over you. These angels, authorities, and powers, all is subject to him. So what exactly does this passage mean? Go ahead and go to the next slide if you would. I'm going to walk through a number of applications as we come to a, as a conclusion. Lots of debate. Christians have debated this for a long time. And you may not agree with my interpretation. That's okay. Here's the bottom line. I have very good friends who say, I'm not sure I see it the way you see it. In terms of 19 through 21. 18 to 22 though, we're in full agreement. And here's what that teaches us. First, Jesus suffered to bring us to God. And this has powerful ramifications for us. How are you going to come to God? How will you stand before your creator? How is it possible that we as sinners could stand before God? Do you see, our world likes to think that they're okay. Have you, have you ever heard someone say, well, if God wants to judge me, I'm ready to talk to him. And you feel bad for such a person. Because they've never stood in the face of such holiness. And let me simply say, they will not stand in the face of such holiness. They will kneel before their creator in great fear. Have you not read all of the passages anytime even a believer stands before a visage of God? And they crumble before him. But you see, for us, how are we going to make it into the presence of God? The only way we can make it is if Jesus died for us. You know, this is what Paul calls the offense of the cross. Do you know why the, the cross is so offensive to our world? And maybe why it's offensive to you? It's offensive because it says... That unless Jesus died for you, 
you can't come into God's presence. And if you ask the question, how bad am I? The answer is so bad that the only hope you had was that God's son himself would come and die for you. That's the type of sin we were in. But praise be to God that he didn't leave us there. Jesus suffered to bring us to God. Second point. Because Jesus suffered, we have access to God. Do you remember the text tells us Jesus suffered in order to bring us to God, to open wide the doors of access? And let me ask you this question then. If that veil was torn by the death of Jesus, if those doors were blown open by the crucifixion of the Son, how often are you taking advantage of the open door? Entering into the very presence of God and pleading with him for your needs, for the things of this world. Do You see, if we really believe that Jesus suffered to bring us to God and that we now have access, then friends, we have the greatest blessing known to mankind. We have doors open to us. We have a king who presents his staff before us saying, Access, come in, so that I may hear your prayers. There's a third implication, I think, of this passage. Because Jesus suffered, we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. And this goes along with the passage we, we preached last, or we, we talked about last time. If you fear God, you have nothing else to fear. Because Jesus suffered and died, can even the angelic realm harm us? It gets a little frightening when you begin to think about the fact that there are, in fact, angelic beings who, are mass, who massively overpower us, who have abilities that can appear and not appear. I mean, that starts freaking me out a little bit. But you know, I have nothing to fear. Because you know what the text says? All powers in heaven and in earth and under the earth are subject to my Lord. How then could I fear? Do you see Jesus stood in the front of all who were his enemies and said, you have no more power. And do you know what he says then to us? He says, you are my sons and daughters. Don't fear them anymore. There's nothing left to fear. Jesus has conquered. Fourth point. We, like Christ, should take the long view of suffering. Now, this might not be evident on the surface, but let me remind you that our passage begins the, with the word for. You remember that all the way back? It said, for Christ also suffered. Do you know what it's doing in this passage? It's teaching us this. Because remember back in 3, 13 to 17, what we talked about last week is how our world will turn against us. Even though we try and do right, they treat us wrongly. And Peter ended that passage by saying it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And then he says, and let me give you proof of that. Because Jesus suffered also. You see, when he walked this earth, he suffered 
But look what happened to Jesus. Let me ask you the question that I think Peter wants us to ask. Was Jesus' suffering worth the glory? Philippians chapter 2 tells us that he humbled himself. Being made in the fashion of a man, humbling himself even to the point of the death, the death on the cross. But God has highly exalted him, given him a name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Here's the point of Jesus' suffering. Jesus saw the suffering. He endured the suffering because he knew that the reward was going to be worth it. And here what Peter says is, yes, Christ suffered, but notice where he ended. And here's his message for you. Are you going through suffering today? Maybe it's suffering related to your embrace of Christ. Maybe it isn't. Maybe it's just suffering that God's allowed in your life. I think the point of the passage is this. That even our Lord, even the the sinless one, suffered in this life. And yet, at the end of his days, he was rewarded outrageously. And guess what that means for us? It means likewise. That we will never endure suffering that is greater than the reward God will offer us for that suffering. So take courage. And as we look at a passage like this, we can again get so lost in all the middle section that we miss the big picture. And Peter wants us to capture the big picture. Jesus has conquered. There is no more to fear. And if we would follow his steps, yes, we might suffer. But it will be worth it in the end. Father, I thank you for the suffering of Jesus. You destined it. Indeed, you gave him a cup that he knew from the very beginning of his ministry that he must drink. And he walked towards that cross. And as he did so, there was great turmoil within his heart. And I know among your saints here, there's turmoil in our hearts as we think of the suffering that you've allowed in our lives. And yet, Father, we know that as he walked that path, he looked past the cross to the reward that you had promised to him. I pray, Father, that your saints today, these saints who sit before me, would envision right now the promises that you've given to them. And that you'd take from them every fear of what might take place in the future. And they might rest in the fact that if your son, Jesus, had borne our sin to give us access, oh, then we have nothing else to fear. And we are of all men most to be blessed. Amen.